I, he's Canadian. He's supposed to be polite. Okay, how's that? Okay. Uh, we mentioned at the family meeting a few weeks back that uh, our lease here at uh, Stone Chapel is up at the end of the year, and uh, the elders are prayerfully considering what uh, God might have us do next. Uh, one possibility is that we could stay here and continue renting. Another is that we might be able to buy this place. Another is that there may be some other venue that God would have us go to. And uh, in all of this, uh, our interest is not in figuring out what we want or what is most convenient or pleasant for us, but where God would have us. Uh, one of the things we're doing in exploring that is responding to an invitation from another uh, denomination to uh, come into some space that they have available uh, that is uh, in uh, Catonsville, uh, about five minutes away, uh, or, well, ten from here, but it takes five minutes longer to get there than here from, for just about all of us. Uh, we are having, the elders are meeting on Tuesday night with um, uh, about a half dozen of their very senior people. Um, so we'd be grateful if you could pray uh, that we would uh, speak what God would have us say and, and hear the voice of the Spirit through that conversation. Um, and uh, of course, uh, in all this, we, we do covet your prayers for us as we try to discern what uh, what God would have us do. Ultimately, any major decision like that is going to be something that the whole congregation will, will vote on. So it's not like we're just going to wake up and say, surprise. Um, but uh, at the same time, uh, yeah, the process involves meetings like this. So I uh, would cover your prayers for that on Tuesday evening. Well, we are uh, almost ready to go back into Romans. Uh, we're almost ready to go back into Romans. <clears throat> Uh, resuming our four-year study of the book, but <clears throat> what's, what's funny about that? We had, uh, I, I really appreciate all the good work Joe did this summer in uh, organizing our series on James, uh, and we are about to launch into Romans 9 to 11, which could be the most difficult passage of Scripture to uh, make sense of. And so before we do that, what I want us to do is take the next five weeks and uh, in a sense, make that even harder. You know, we, uh, we are evangelicals, and I want us to talk in the next five weeks about what that means, how, how we understand ourselves uh, in our particular branch of the Christian family tree. And I want that to help us to understand why, in many ways, the stakes are highest for us when it comes to passages like Romans 9 through 11. Uh, there are, uh, depending on which scholar you ask, four or five marks of evangelicalism, and uh, I, I've concluded that it's five, not four, so we're going to be, over the next five weeks, looking at each one of those. And I have, in fact, arranged them in such a way that they will help us to remember what they all are through a nifty mnemonic device that I will not disclose to you yet, but I will eventually. But I will tell you that the picture on this morning's bulletin does have something to do with the first. This, uh, for those of you who are unaware, is a picture of Terrell Suggs photobombing the offense at training camp a few years ago. Terrell Suggs, of course, number 55, outside linebacker, and the guy who keeps quarterbacks up at night. So that's the series. So 
Let's open our Bibles, if we can, to the book of Acts. The book of Acts comes before Paul's letters, <coughs> after the Gospels. I want to look at chapter 16. There's a story in chapter 16 that has gotten some attention because of a sermon that was preached back in May. <coughs> we'll tell this story. Acts chapter 16. And to make it easy, we're going to start at verse 16. So once when uh, these uh, apostles were going to a place of prayer, uh, the writer, who's probably Luke, and he was probably with them, which is why he says we, were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. And she earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. And she kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the Spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews, and they're throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. While we're out midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, like you do, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword, was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in with a flashlight, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your whole household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. And when it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, Magistrates have ordered you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. And Paul said to the officers, not so fast. They beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now you want to get rid of us quietly? Uh-uh. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. 
After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and encouraged them, and then they left. So in some ways, this is a typical story that we get out of Acts. Paul, or one of the other apostles, performs some sort of miraculous deed, whether it's a healing or, as in this case, an exorcism. People don't like it. They get beaten up. They get thrown into jail. We get a whole lot of this stuff in Acts, some great stories. Not everybody looks at these, though, as great stories in the way that you might initially. I think upon reading this, right, who do you think the author of Acts looks at as the hero of this story? The answer is not Jesus. Well, not really. Paul. Yeah, Paul and Silas are the heroes of the story. They're the good guys, right? Not everybody sees it that way. Back in May, in, uh, at a, uh, while preaching a sermon in Venezuela, the Most Reverend Catherine Jeffords Shorey, who is the presiding bishop and primate of the Episcopal Church, had this to say about this passage. We live with the continuing tension between holier impulses that encourage us to see the image of God in all human beings and the reality that some of us choose not to see that glimpse of the divine and instead use other people as means to an end. We're seeing something similar right now in the changing attitudes and laws about same-sex relationships as many people come to realize that difference is not the same thing as wrong. For many people, it can be difficult to see God at work in the world around us, particularly if God is doing something unexpected. There are some remarkable examples of that kind of blindness in the readings we heard this morning, and slavery is wrapped up in a lot of it. Paul is annoyed at the slave girl who keeps pursuing him, telling the world that he and his companions are slaves of God. She is quite right. She's telling the same truth Paul and others claim for themselves, but Paul's annoyed, perhaps, for being put in his place. And he responds by depriving her of her gift of spiritual awareness. Paul can't abide something he won't see as beautiful or holy, so he tries to destroy it. It gets him thrown in prison. That's pretty much where he's put himself, by his own refusal to recognize that she too shares in God's nature just as much as he does, maybe more so. The amazing thing is that during that long night in jail, he remembers that he might find God there, so he and his cellmates spend the night praying and singing hymns. An earthquake opens the doors and sets them free, and now Paul and his friends most definitely discern the presence of God. The jailer doesn't. He thinks his end is at hand. This time Paul remembers who he is and that all his neighbors are reflections of God, and he reaches out to his frightened captor. This time, Paul acts with compassion rather than annoyance. And as a result, the company of Jesus' friends expands to include a whole new household. It makes me wonder what would have happened to that slave girl if Paul had seen the Spirit of God in her. What, according to the text, might have happened to that slave girl if Paul had seen the Spirit of God in her? Any ideas? Not a rhetorical question. Yes, Ron. That's possible. She might have got, if, if in fact the spirit that was in her was the spirit of God, which the text kind of implies it wasn't. Yeah. Right. Yes. That's, yeah, this is, 
This is an exorcism. Yeah, I, I think Bishop Shorey is too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what might have happened if he had recognized what was a demonic spirit as the spirit of God, Darcy? Yeah, she would have continued to be a slave. She would have been exploited for, for financial gain of somebody else. That probably wouldn't have turned out so well for her. And she would have continued to do the work of Satan, which we probably would see as a negative. She could have, uh, although if she was somebody else's slave and she was just a girl, she probably had been separated by her, from her family at that point. Yeah. Yeah, I... It's a, it's a cute little rhetorical question, but I think if we actually try to answer, we find out that the re- responses are probably not going to be all that good. It's clear from the text, because this is like so many other exorcism stories, this spirit that was in fact saying, yes, the, these men are servants of the Most High God. And remember, what did James say? You believe that uh, Jesus is Lord? Yeah, well, guess what? The demons believe that too, and they shudder. Uh, obviously, this having her going around—it's okay. Having having her going around uh, as the uh, as the walking advertisement for what they were doing did not fit with the strategic plan that Paul and Silas had. And so, ultimately, Paul had to cast a demon out of her. This is not something that the author of Acts seems to portray as a negative thing, unless I'm reading this really wrong. And I don't think I am. This seems to be one more example of God's power being demonstrated as superior to that of demonic spirits, superior to the drive for wealth, superior to commerce, and superior to worldly authority. It's not that, as Bishop Jefferson Shorey suggests, that God fin- Paul finally realized when he was in prison, oh, maybe I'll find God here, so let's start singing some hymns. Paul was deeply aware of God's presence with him when he called upon the power of God to cast a demon out of this girl. And this whole thing with uh, the earthquake and the prison doors opening, this is a demonstration of God's superiority to earthly authorities. In fact, you even get as a bonus the scene of Paul citing his rights as a citizen, not just to win a victory over the authorities by getting himself freed, but in fact he humiliates them for not following due process proper to a Roman citizen. I think some of the more generous descriptions of what Bishop Jeffords-Shorey did in her sermon were uh, fanciful exegesis, but this is, I think, precisely the opposite of what the text is trying to convey to us. And for us as evangelicals, that would be a problem, but for others, it's not so much. I want to throw a few slides up here and try to illustrate what I'm talking about, just to give you a sense of, of where where we fit in the broader uh, family tree. This is what is known as the Anglican triad, or the, the three-legged stool of, of uh, what the uh, Anglican tradition, which is what uh, Bishop Jefford Story is representing. Uh, scripture, reason, and tradition. These are the ways that you come to understand things about God by uh, Scripture, reason, and tradition working together. Uh, now, 
not too much later, uh, you had uh, the Wesleyan quadrilateral. John Wesley added in experience. Wesley, of course, was a good Anglican himself. He never stopped being an Anglican. It wasn't until after he died that uh, the Methodists went on and become, became their own denomination. But Wesley said, no, you need to throw in religious experience as another means of knowing God and things about God. So uh, Wesley said you need to have scripture, reason, tradition, and experience. But as a practical matter, what you find is that in different branches of the family tree, some of these get emphasized more than others. So our Catholic friends, for example, are likely to emphasize tradition. If there is a question about a particular issue, they're likely to give more weight to tradition, in part because of the way the our Catholic friends understand Scripture, the interpretive work of the church, the, the magisterium is what they call it, uh, is in continuity with Scripture. So there's a sense in which what we have written in the Bible is sort of continued on in the teaching authority of the church. So if there's a question, uh, they're, gonna, they're likely to defer uh, to tradition. And in the more liberal traditions, and, and uh, Bishop Jefford Shorey would be a great example of this, uh, if you find something in Scripture that doesn't seem to make sense, then you are likely to take your reasonable posture and say that Scripture is wrong, or that it was misguided, or that it was limited by its perspective. Uh, depending on how aggressive that person is, uh, they will show uh, more or less respect for Scripture, but that's the, uh, that's the kind of, of move that will often be made in, uh, in a more liberal uh, setting. Same, uh, and you also will, will see experience exalted. So you'll have somebody say, yes, I know the Bible says that I'm not supposed to do that, but it feels so good. Oh, no, wait. I'm not going to say it feels so good, but I, I feel the presence and love of God, so I'm going to keep on doing that, right? My experience is something that is going to trump what... Scripture says is wrong, what the tradition holds to be wrong, what, you know, if you think about it for a second, isn't going to make sense. Uh, again, it's, it, it, very seldom is this done in a, in a really thorough or explicit manner. This is almost sort of a habit of thinking uh, that develops. Now, our deal as evangelicals is we really do give priority to Scripture, and we see tradition, reason, and experience as ways that can work together to help us to understand what Scripture says, but it's Scripture that holds the, prior, the, the place of priority. Of course, why is that? Well, we believe that because we believe that Scripture, the Bible, is inspired, i.e., it is the Word of God. That's our text for today, <coughs> chapter 3 of Second Timothy, where Paul says, uh, I'll start in verse 14, As for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture, pasagrafe, all Scripture is God-breathed. It is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All Scripture, Paul says, is God-breathed. And 
You get a similar thought here in 2 Peter, in chapter 1, where he says, We have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So when we talk about the authors of Scripture, when I talk about Acts, Luke, I think, wrote Acts, Paul wrote Romans, but they wrote as they were being carried along by the Holy Spirit. They were writing words that were inspired by God. And so we understand the authors of the Scripture not only to be the human author, but indeed to be the Holy Spirit. And we believe that that same Holy Spirit who inspired the Word is also illuminating the Word through things like tradition and reason and experience so that as we study and as we listen and as we place ourselves before the Word of God, we believe that the same Holy Spirit who inspired it is helping us to understand it and is helping us to live into it and is helping us to be transformed by it. And this kind of an attitude provoke, or this kind of a, a, an understanding of Scripture provokes some attitudes and it provokes some practices. And one of the attitudes that it provokes is humility. I would hope, right? I mean, if we're not trusting in our own reason, we're not trusting in our own experience, and we're not trusting in the fact that some pope somewhere said something, then we have to be trusting in the scripture that God has given and that he is enabling us to understand. Eugene Peterson, who's one of my favorite authors, who's not only a, uh, a brilliant student of the Bible, he was a pastor out in Bel Air. He says in, in his book, Eat This Book, A Conversation in the Art of Spiritual Reading, Peterson says, he's talking about exegesis, which is the work of trying to understand the text, of not just coming to the text and saying, you know, how does this make me feel, but what is God saying here? He said, exegesis doesn't mean mastering the text. It means submitting to it as it is given to us. Exegesis doesn't take charge of the text and impose superior knowledge on it. It enters the world of the text and lets the text read us. Exegesis is an act of sustained humility. There's so much about this text that I don't know that I'll never know. Christians keep returning to it. With all the help we can get from grammarians and archaeologists and historians and theologians, letting ourselves be formed by it. It's an attitude of humility, an attitude of deference, an attitude of submission. And this is not an attitude that you will necessarily, an attitude toward Scripture that you will necessarily find in less evangelical circles. I think about, and sometimes I forget this, right? So I remember when I was doing my doctoral program, the first first day uh, of classes, a bunch of us went off to lunch and we're sitting there and, and uh, we're discussing 
some particular theological issue, and, and I, I said, yeah, well, but doesn't Hebrews say this? And the, one of my colleagues says, I don't really like Hebrews. <laughs> I'm like, okay, well, perhaps when the Holy Spirit does a second edition of his inspired text, he'll take your edits into account. I'm going to move over here so when the lightning bolt hits, I don't get in trouble. Uh, you, you know, uh, we're just not allowed to say, well, I don't like that part, so I'm not going to pay attention to it. When I think about this time, I was at a, a conference. At, uh, this was at a, a very prestigious, distinguished institution, and there was a discussion going on about uh, interpreting a certain theological question, and I said, well, but doesn't Paul say da 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 there was sort of a silence, and the dean of the divinity school said, well, let's pass over that and move on to that. <laughs> like, oops, sorry. Shouldn't have mentioned the Bible. But that's what we do. I mean, that's, that's our attitude as, as evangelicals is, look, if, this, if the Bible says this, we have to deal with this. We don't get the option of picking and choosing what we want. And part of that is... I think because I know well, if I got to pick and choose what I'd want, I'd try to toss out the stuff that I most need to hear. But what this, what this produces is not only attitudes, but it, it produces practices, this kind of an approach to Scripture, giving primacy to Scripture. produces practices that are going to sustain us both as individual believers and as a community. We do things like read Scripture and pray Scripture. There's a, uh, N.T. Wright has a book on the Psalms that just came out, a wonderful book about the importance of praying the Psalms. And we, we did that as an exercise a few years ago here. Maybe we'll do it again where we, we enter into the Psalm that we're reading and we pray it for ourselves if we are there and if it is not speaking to our condition, we pray it on behalf of somebody for whom it does. If we don't feel like we're being persecuted by our enemies without cause, we certainly can pray that on behalf of the persecuted church worldwide. And we can join in not only with 2,000 years of Christian believers, but indeed with followers of God before that, prayed these psalms and understood that they are a way for us to grow into a, a closer relationship with God. I think it was Billy Graham who said, I read five psalms a day and I read one proverb a day, one chapter of Proverbs. I read psalms so I can understand how to deal with God and proverbs so I can understand how to deal with other people. There's some wisdom in that. But we also practice this in our own personal study, our own personal devotions. In many homes, there will be a Bible that is in great shape <laughs> because it never gets opened. And it looks nice. But, you know, our deal as evangelicals is we, you know, one Catholic priest once described us as those strange people who go around with Bibles under their arms. But... You know, it's almost embarrassing to have a new, sharp-looking Bible as an evangelical. It's like you have to go out at night and run over it with a car a few times to make it look like, look like you're really reading it. But we, you know, we use these things up because we do. We, we read them. Or, if we don't, we feel like we should. That's probably one of the other differences. I grew up in a very uh, non-evangelical Protestant church, and there were Bibles in the pews but if you actually picked one up and started reading it, people would look at you funny. 
We study the Bible in house church. That's one of the reasons we have house churches, so that we can study together in community. There's a sense in which when we talk about tradition and reason and experience, we're drawing on the experience of the, our neighbors and community. And we're, we're hearing, in tradition, we're hearing the voice of those who have gone before us, but we're also hearing people in, uh, in, our, in our house churches who are older and wiser, who have walked with God longer than we have. When, when we can't make sense of something, maybe there's going to be somebody there around the living room who, who understands it better, who can provide some insight. That's why in our house churches we'll, we'll study the Bible. What the women's Bible study is, is all about this, and they're diligent about, uh, about seriously studying and, and not trying to open up the text and say, how does this make me feel today? But they said, what is it that God has said, and what does that mean, and therefore, how do I live accordingly? That's why we do preaching the way we do here. Generally speaking, we try to take a good half hour to unpack what it is that the Word has for us. And you may have noticed that we, bless you, we tend to go ranging far and wide through the Scriptures. When Paul says, all Scripture is... God breathed, he means all scripture. What? Even and especially Ezekiel. And incidentally, when he wrote that, he was referring basically to the Old Testament because a good bit of the New Testament hadn't been written yet. All scripture is inspired, and so we look to all of it. And so that's one of the reasons that we, not only do we try to to have a balanced diet of gospels and letters and Old Testament and uh, we also, when, when we're, we're talking about things in Scripture that allude to other parts of Scripture, we try to show the connections between them. We take this word seriously. I honestly don't know what I would do if I wasn't really preaching the word. I, I, I guess there are people who can get up and give like a little 15-minute motivational speech every Sunday. I would absolutely run out of material about three minutes into that. And the other thing, and this is what I get to see in the world of evangelical theology, is that our theological habits as evangelicals are always oriented towards Scripture. The, this fall in November, the annual meeting of the Evangelical Theological Society will be here in Baltimore. We'll have 2,000 of the sharpest evangelical minds in the world here in Baltimore reading papers and putting each other to sleep. But one hallmark of evangelical theology is that, for one, you see people at these meetings with their you know, Greek New Testaments and their Hebrew Old Testaments whipping them out and checking what the guy said to make sure it's right. It's not an easy crowd. But, but this is a place where if it doesn't hold up to Scripture, then it just doesn't hold up. It's just not going to be taken seriously. And in some ways, that's sort of the hallmark of an evangelical theologian, is that he's constantly doing business with what God has revealed in his word. It is not a creative effort to make sense of your religious experiences, but it is a belief that God has, in fact, spoken. He is still speaking, in part because you're not listening, but God has spoken. He still speaks, and we're supposed to listen, and we're accountable to what we hear, what we read. So, as we're about to take communion together and we're about to participate in a very, very traditional activity, we're going to, before we do that, say the creed together. 
which again is a traditional statement of faith, kind of a, a synopsis of what we find in, in Scripture, things that we believe. But we believe them as evangelicals, not just because they got passed down and not just because the words work. We believe them because we think they're a faithful representation of what God has given us in Scripture. We think that, that they hold true. And if at any point they didn't with respect to what God has revealed in Scripture, then we would want to change that. That's what Luther said when, when he was quoting the ancient church fathers against his opponents. He said, look, I think Augustine would want me to say that I think he was, he was out of step with what Paul said here. And we'll get to tradition later on. But today, evangelicals are Bible people. So let's stand up as Bible people, as evangelicals. We'll join together in the creed, and then after that I'll invite you to come forward and to take the elements, uh, take them from us and bring them back to your seat, and then we'll all partake together. The uh, red is wine, the white is grape juice, the bread is unleavened. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, God from God and of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen.